Dave Chumley here from Primary Talent International in London. I'm really privileged to be on Promoter 101. I'm Dan Steinberg. This is Promoter 101, episode 22. We're in London at the ILMC conference, and filling in for Luke is Julia Frank from Wizard in Germany. Welcome to the podcast, Julia. I'm excited to be part of the podcast with such a great lineup this week. Ticket Fly's Andrew Dreskin, ICM partners Andrea Johnson, South by Southwest team join us for a conference preview, and Scott Perry talks tech with us. I can't wait to get into it. But before we do, if you have any questions or thoughts for us, or just any random feedback, email us at steiny at promoter101.net. My name is John Giddings, and I'm from Solo Agency London, and I'm on Promoter 101. The Promoter 101 World Tour continues, so come see us when we come to a town near you. Next Thursday, March 16th at 2 p.m., South by Southwest, Steiny hosts a conversation with APA's Steve Martin and the Austin Convention Center, room 16AB. Following the Steve Martin interview at 3 p.m. to 5.30, a big South by Southwest party, a.k.a. the South by Southwest Social Call, at Frank's, 407 Colorado Street, co-hosted by APA, Bill Young, and Emporium Presents. RSVP by emailing to rsvp at emporiumpresents.com. April 19th, Canadian Music Week 2017. We've got a classic combo of Golden Voices, Elliot Lefko and UTA's Jack Ross, and a few other surprises. Hi, this is Jason Miller from Live Nation, SVP of International and Emerging Markets. You are on Promoter 101. It's time for the news of the week. AEG Live changed their brand. Now it's AEG Presents. So everybody's got new emails. And that seems to be a really unique change, i got to say, to go from live to presents. Not quite sure what they were thinking, but those guys tend to be a little smarter than me. Guns N' Roses sell 300,000 tickets down under. FBI Director James Comey has canceled his planned address next week at South by Southwest Festival, citing scheduling conflicts will keep him in Washington, as reported by... Star. Big congrats go out to Sally Williams, who has been promoted to Senior VP of Programming and Artist Relations for Opry Entertainment and GM of the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville. Way to go, Sally. In sad news, Polestar reported Woodstock producer Fred Weintraub died at 88. Thoughts go out to his family. Industry executive Tommy Page also passed this week. That wraps up the news of the week. Hi, it's Rick Greenstein. I'm with the Gersh Agency. Going to be on Promoter 101. Let's catch up on Dan's Promoter 101 tweets from the past week. When the answer to a simple question like what's the actual legal capacity of your venue keeps changing. This just seems sketchy to me. When someone doesn't know the literal meaning of urgent, also very urgent means the same thing as urgent. Yeah, this one seems a little self-explanatory and kind of ridiculous. Very urgent. Watching your next generation friends move up from assistants to becoming real movers and shakers. Yeah, proud of a bunch of my friends that have gotten promotions lately off of people's desks and becoming real full-fledged agents. Good ups on all of you. I'm proud of you and excited to see that all happening in the industry. Way to go, guys. And that does it for the Promoter 101 tweets.
Hi, this is Steve Martin, not the actor, not the PR guy, the agent from APA. I'll be on Dan Steinberg's perpendicular, fantastic, psychedelic Promoter 101 podcast from South by Southwest, Thursday, March 16th. This week's feature interview is an internet visionary, the founder of Ticket Web and Ticketfly, the godfather of the online ticketing, Andrew Dreskin. Promoter 101, coming to you from Polestar Live in the suite. Joined today by the godfather of online ticketing, Andrew Dreskin. How you doing? I'm doing well, Dan. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy day. So obviously the world knows that you're the mastermind behind Ticketfly, but let's take it back to the early days of your start in the game. Sure. So uh, I'm going to try to remember that far back, Dan. That's been a long time, but let me search the depths of my memory. You're senior citizen in this industry that we work <laughs> in now. <laughs> I try not to think about that. So uh, I got my start in the business promoting concerts in college in New Orleans. I was a devout music fan as a kid and uh, ended up at school at Tulane in New Orleans. And New Orleans and Tulane both greatly fostered my passion for music and live events. And that really set me off uh, on my path in the live events industry. And uh, from there, I worked in the concert business, the independent record business, and ultimately the ticketing business. Okay. And technology has always been a path for you. You were there before most, building websites before most people knew what they were. That's right. Yeah. So very early on, I was sort of the general manager at Berserkly Records. What in essence became of Berserkly Records. You probably remember Berserkly, Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers and the Greg Kinn Band and those artists. I got Billboard magazine in the mail and I looked on the cover and I read an article about how A&M Records had put up a website for their artists and the light bulb went off for me and I realized at that moment that, that I needed to do that for Berserkly and that A, it would be a great marketing vehicle for artists, but ultimately it would be how people purchased music and listened to music. And uh, that got me going. And then from there, formed a little web design company to do some early music websites. And that uh, ultimately led me to, uh, to ticketing. Yep. Could you tell in the early days how many hits you were getting on those websites? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty crude, but, you know, at first I sort of popped up the website and then, you know, it's like we just sat there and waited. I mean, there wasn't a lot of activity. This was in the early days of like the mosaic browsers and things like that. This is even pre-Netscape. And where I was really early was, so around this time, I had this epiphany that no one was ever going to the record store again. So I went out and I bought an ISDN line and a new Mac, you know, like a I forget even what they were called back then, and a CD burner. And I basically hurried up and waited. And I was ready for people to start, you know, buying and selling music over the internet. I had a, a very expensive CD burner. At the time. Well, all CD burners must have been very expensive back then. I mean, it was like $5,000 or something for like a CD burner then. But I was like, you know, no one's ever going to the record store again. And what year gonna, is this roughly? This was like 1994 or so. So $5,000 being like 9000 now. Yeah, it was, it was uh, a big investment. Let's just say I was early, absurdly Well, early. you've always been an early adopter. Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, that really sort of, got me excited about technology and, and what it could do for live events. And I've uh, been on that path ever since. The concept of knowing what a website was, was kind of ahead of the curve to begin with. Who is going to these things at that early point when it's first just started? There's a hysterical news clip that we showed all incoming Ticketfly employees. And uh, it shows this company called the Internet Underground Music Archive. I don't know if you remember IUMA. Yeah. They were the first big music website. And they were a bunch of hardcore technologists. You know, there wasn't a big audience for this stuff. And interestingly, so now we, you know, we all stream concerts on our desktop and it's like sort of commonplace and stuff. But to answer your question, little known fact, uh, the, basically the sort of first web 
live music, audio, and video concerts that you could watch on the World Wide Web in like 1993-94 were broadcast on a sort of parallel pipes called the M-Bone. And literally, we, in conjunction with some of the Iuma guys, we did like a Michael Hedges broadcast and some other stuff. I literally think there were probably 20 or 30 people in the world who had the technology to decode this and watch it. So so you were really ahead of the curve. We were playing to an empty room, let's put it that way. And just because the 20 people had the technology didn't mean they were all doing it. Yeah, exactly. Although I think, probably most of them were just because there was limited things they could do. Yeah, exactly. You've literally reached the end of the internet. <laughs> They were looking for things to do uh, on a Saturday night. Let's put it that way. Okay. And with that said, that you've had some really incredible visionary moments. And I believe you said to me a couple of years ago that you realized at one moment that every computer on every desk was going to be a box office on everyone's desk. And you wanted to be the first one there. Yeah, that's right. I remember the, the moment where that epiphany happened or when that epiphany happened. I was talking to a guy named Rick Tyler who ultimately became my co-founder at TicketWeb. And uh, Rick was a disgruntled Ticketmaster patron. He had purchased a ticket to a show, and he was unhappy about what he deemed to be an exorbitant service fee. And he was a software engineer, and he decided, instead of complaining about it, he was going to go and replicate their system running over a web browser. And I was brought to lunch with him one day, and uh, when he explained this new technology. It, it mirrored Ticketmaster's distribution schema, but ran over a web browser and promoters have a sophisticated ticketing software over the browser. And also consumers could buy online for the first time. The light bulb went off for me. And I realized that every desktop in the world was about to become a box office. And I was incredibly excited. I jettisoned this other idea I had. So I was sort of dual tracking these two ideas. One was to start to sell music over the internet hence the ISDN line and the CD burner and all that. And the other was to start to build TicketWeb, and ultimately that was the path I chose. Okay, and you're credited with selling the actual first online ticket ever. Yeah, that's right. TicketWeb sold the first ticket ever on the internet December of 1995. The venue was the bottom of the hill San in San Francisco, one of uh, San Francisco's great indie and alternative clubs. I get asked a lot, who, what was the first band to ever sell a ticket on the internet? The first band to ever sell a ticket on the internet, Low. Oh, Tom Windish band. Yeah, and so from that point on, uh, we started in 95, and we uh, started in San Francisco and uh, brought it nationwide, and then ultimately to the UK, where we had TicketWeb UK. We licensed the system to some folks allied with big concerts in South Africa, and ultimately uh, Ticketmaster acquired that business in 2000. Okay, and you, I assume, had a non-compete when you sold the company? That's correct, Dan. So how long does something like that last, smartass? <laughs> yeah, so I get asked that a lot. I had you know, basically a one-year non-compete. My non-compete had run out like six or seven years before we founded Ticketfly. And what did I you was, do in that window? I was out of that the business altogether for that period, at least the ticketing business. So the next thing I did, uh, my wife uh, ended up doing her residency in New York. She's a physician and we moved back east. I was almost an investor in the Bonnaroo Music Festival. And unfortunately for me, I, I ended up not being an investor in Bonnaroo, but that got me thinking about the festival business. And that was really my next big idea after TicketWeb. I saw Coachella was just starting to, uh, to gain steam. Bonnaroo had just happened for its first time in Tennessee. And I was in New York. And again, the light bulb went off and I thought, hmm, 
there isn't a large scale rock festival in New York. You know, I'd been to the European rock festivals and uh, I was the provider for Burning Man. So I had this vision to sort of unite like a Burning Man type concept with theme camps and art installations with a rock festival. And I uh, produced a festival called Field Day in 2003, which was extremely well-intentioned yet had some issues competitive pressures and things like that. There we had Radiohead and the Beasties, Beck, Blur, a bunch of great bands. And then also after that, there I caught the festival bug. And then after that, I uh, ended up doing the U.S. version of the V Festival from England and did that for like eight years or something with Seth Hurwitz in D.C. Now that's a free festival now, right? You guys continue to do that. Uh, actually, no, we haven't done it for the past couple few years, but it ran pretty successfully for like eight years. Was it always a free festival when it ran? No, it's, it's an interesting story. Uh, we started in 2006 and uh, we did three years as a paid ticket at Pimlico Racecourse. And it was big. We did the Red Hot Chili Peppers and and, uh, the Who one year. We did the Beasties and the Police another year. And then in 2008, right as the economy was absolutely cratering, we did um, the Foo Fighters and Bob Dylan, Nine Inch Nails, Kanye West, Jack Johnson. Guess how many tickets we sold per day, Dan? I'm terrified to ask. 18,000 a day. Seth looked at me and said, I could have sold 18,000 tickets for the Foo Fighters at Verizon. So it was that moment where, and the, the economy was in the shitter. Before you move on from there, 18,000 a day and you guys were set up to sell what? What was that? What were you hoping? Uh, I mean, capacity was like 50 or 60. So um, to give a scale to what you were expecting, because you probably weren't expecting to sell out necessarily, but you were expecting at least to get 35 or 40,000. Yeah, I mean, we've done in the first year, I think we did on the order of 30,000 a day for uh, in 2006, 2007, we did about 32,000 a day, something like that for the police and the beasties. Which is an amazing package. Like those two bands alone should sell 50,000 tickets and would any, as a stadium show, show anywhere if they were to do that. Yeah, I mean, you know, the V-Fest that we did on the East Coast was fantastic. We had basically three main stages. We had, you know, big bands like The Police on one stage. We had a, you know, great sort of indie stage with like LCD sound system and the Black Keys and those kind of bands. And then we were at one point, little known fact, the biggest dance music event on the East Coast as well. That was sort of my baby. I programmed the dance stage. And is that your personal taste in music, right? Yeah, at the time, you know, I'd seen the, the success of the dance tent like Coachella and how high energy it was and so I convinced Seth to let me do it and we booked you know acts like Dead Mouse and Richie Houghton and Armin Van Buren and Underworld and and it was really fantastic. So that's cutting edge so you toyed around with a whole bunch of different ideas but they're all creative outlets. Yeah I guess so I hadn't thought about it like that you know the dance music thing was interesting because at the time you know no one was into dance music a very limited number of folks who even knew what dance music was and of course there are the purists who you know were listening to Derek Carter and you know, some of the sort of forefathers, but generally this stuff was not mainstream. You know, looking back now, you know, that was, call it 2008 or so. So, you know, what, nine years ago, obviously dance music has exploded onto the scene since then. Okay, and that launched from your traveling overseas to Europe, right, where you got a taste of it where it was bigger and happening earlier, right? Yeah, it was Europe, and it was also, uh, you know, I want to sort of give a shout out to Paul T and what they were doing at Coachella, you know. Every time I walked into the Sahara dance tent, I was just absolutely blown away by it. And um, 
dance music became a passion of mine. My buddy Jason Miller and I in New York uh, had a little partnership to do dance shows with Live Nation. He and I did that together. And then ultimately, uh, I sort of recused myself from that partnership and he moved on producing EDM shows in New York because I had just founded Ticketfly and uh, I didn't want to be in competition with my own clients. Yeah, there's a conflict there a little bit, right? Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Keep it clean. So Ticketfly came back. You saw obviously an opening in the ticketing market and something that you would sold the vehicle of Ticket Web. You'd waited your time out and decided to get back in the business. How did that happen? So it was about 2007 or so, and I was producing the music festival with Seth, which we just discussed. And um, a guy who worked for me at, at Ticket Web named Dan Turee came to me and he said, hey, you know, there's sort of a natural inflection point happening. Live Nation just terminated its agreement with Ticketmaster. And I think there is an opportunity not being met in ticketing. And I'd like you to join me and I'd like us to get the band back together. And I told him, you're out of your fucking mind, man. Like, I mean, been there, done that, not interested, leave me alone. But he was persistent. And the more time I spent with him, the more we got excited about the opportunities. And really, it was focused on a couple things. First, social media was just burgeoning. And, you know, I'm talking I, about like early days of like Friendster, right? Like uh, MySpace? Yeah, yeah, Friendster, MySpace, you know, Facebook and Twitter were really just starting to take off. And it occurred to me, had we had access to tools like Facebook and Twitter at TicketWeb, it would have been game changing. The idea that you could leverage the fan as a sales and marketing channel on behalf of promoters was a very, very exciting concept. And then the other one that got us really excited in the early days was this notion of integration. Venues and promoters were living in a siloed world. They had their website, email newsletter, ticketing, the social networks, but none of it was interconnected and it made promoters very inefficient. They had to continually update all of those channels with the same information. So we decided that we were going to build the first integrated platform where you enter data one time. And it pushed everything through. And it pushed everything through. What a great fucking idea. <laughs> you know, Dan, I uh, tend to be rather humble, but I will say it was a great fucking idea. And living through that time of being one of those guys that had to do that, and I didn't have a big staff at that time, it was a big deal. Anything changed on a show, you added a band, a band switched, anything. It was like 25 places that you were pushing things out to. Yep. And websites weren't great then, so it was like there were lots of steps. Yeah. I mean, it was an hours, maybe days process to build one show. And then take guys like you who do 200, 300, 400, 500 shows a year, and all of a sudden you see how that could become unwieldy. Yeah, you're saving me two employees. Exactly. And in fact, you know, at some of the early meetings I remember we had with some promoters, we'd sit there in a room with the promoter and four members of their staff, and we'd show them the technology, and they'd look at it, and they'd go, well, then what do I need all these people for? <laughs> And we were like, whoa, you know, listen, that's your business. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you can redeploy those people into more productive endeavors. Remember me and uh, Jason Zink having drinks with you a handful of years ago talking about, well, you guys are so good with technology. If you guys built the offer sheet inside your system, it would save all these guys that don't understand the math, the process, and that software would be amazing. And we talked about it and we joked and you were like, if they depended on our system, they could never leave us. And we all kind of laughed. And like, there was a smile. And then a couple of years ago when I went to Flycon, 
I saw you guys roll out the software, and I was just like, oh, he really liked that. That was cool. <laughs> and obviously, it would be harder on more complex, bigger deals. But when you're dealing with GA clubs, the software you got, and I'm sure it's gotten more complex, and you guys keep building on that stuff. But the genius of, you know what, we'll make you look professional right off the bat. Our software will teach you how to be promoters, so agents will take you seriously, because we'll make sure that ASCAP and BMI and SoundScan calculate correctly, and the formulas are up to date, and the taxes are in there, and everything is entered once you build it once it'll just re-vibrate every time it was like that was a really genius thing those kids are never going to leave you to go to one of the competitive places because they're now dependent on that tool that's fucking brilliant well thanks dan yeah you know i think it was a win-win our goal has always been to become an indispensable partner to our clients to streamline their operations which ultimately makes them more profitable and yeah this is a concept we had been interested in for some time the booking tools and uh, i'm delighted to say that we built it and uh it's a great product. Promoters can manage holds on it and uh, they can send offers and they can settle from those sheets. And yeah, it's been good. So you guys have focused on starting anyway, the GA rooms and have moved into the bigger, more complex reserve seating rooms over time. But you have the cooler hipper rooms. A lot of those promoters and venues have come to you guys and you guys have done a very good job aligning with the coolest clubs in the country. And it almost seems like if they're not on your system, they're missing out because the critical mass is those bands are playing and being sold across the spectrum on your system. Was that by design? I can't say it's fully by design. Uh, we do have a saying at Ticketfly, which is that all tickets are not created equal. You know, we love selling tickets for great shows and great promoters. That is something that we're excited about. You know, every day I'm humbled and gratified at the fact that we are the choice of the hipster venues and promoters. I think it's great. I'll quickly tell you a story. Uh, I had uh, down at FlyCon, our user conference and industry summit, which took place recently in New Orleans. I was talking with Lee Anderson on stage and uh, Lee told me that unbeknownst to us that at Paradigm, they're routing ticket fly only tours. They're trying to pick ticket fly rooms because they like the Ticketfly software. They think it's got a great marketing technology. You know, those tend to be hipster rooms. And now Pandora is a great marketing partner on top of it. But I wasn't even like, you know, we went and proposed this. He said, oh, we're already, we have a bunch of Ticketfly tours that are being routed right now in our office. Almost like the Live Nation club tours, but you're not having to underwrite them. Yeah. And, you know, that also got me thinking. And I don't know, Dan, I don't know if you've heard this, but... um. One of the things that we're working on in 2017 are Ticketfly tour offers. So basically putting together Blockbook. Yeah, putting together a network of Ticketfly venues to compete against the Live Nation tour offer. We've heard it from many agents, from many venue owners, and from many managers that they would love to have an alternative to a Live Nation tour offer, you know, in rooms below the arena size. Genius. That's really creative. So you're putting together the pieces of the cooler guys in the business, but not turning anybody else away. And you work with a lot of the bigger guys too, not to be undercut there. But you guys have gone after different venues and different promoters in a much more aggressive way of courting that the industry hasn't seen in years. You have your own conference, FlyCon where you do your own address. What do you call it when you address them? It's like the State of the Nation or something, or State of Ticketing? State of the Union, something, yeah, something like that. But you give the update every year, and you tell them where you're going, and you demo the new stuff, and you give them the heads up on what you guys are rolling out so people can opt into things if they want. And it sells out, right? Hundreds of clients. Yeah, we had uh, 540 people this year. And that was New Orleans, right? In New Orleans. So is there any connection to your time at Tulane with why that's held there instead of San Francisco now? There is. When we were looking for another market in which to do fly 
FlyCon. New Orleans was an obvious choice. Great music market, good weather, centrally located. And it's interesting. So we did it for our first year there last year, and it was amazing. And we just did it there this year. And again, it was just totally magical. You know, I feel like all the fly cons have been great, but this one was really special. And in some ways now, New Orleans and FlyCon have become inseparable. And that's, so it'll stay there. Well, we're exploring a bunch of options now, but you know. And you've just finished it, so obviously not knowing yet is... Yeah, it's hard to envision it being elsewhere, but we know there are other great cities as well. But one interesting thing that, that I would tell you is we're seeing something interesting happening there. You know, FlyCon is educational, it, it's informative, but it gives venues and promoters a chance to really sort of understand who TicketFly is and like what moves us and why we do this. And we get a chance to sort of bestow TicketFly hospitality on our clients and prospective clients and other folks from the industry. You know, it's really just amazing. People have just been raving about the TicketFly community and family and that they really feel like they're part of something. And I think it's different than the usual vendor relationship. And so that's been really satisfying to see. Before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about the fact that the industry has changed a little bit. And there's no question I'm a geek when it comes to the history of the industry. And I, I, I geek out on it, like the guys that created the business and the model that we're at and how the unwritten rules came together. And the next generation doesn't necessarily seem to not only do they not seem to know, they don't seem to care is what you were saying. And there's a new day where they're doing their own thing and they don't give a fuck what the pioneers that came before us created. And it's interesting because I believe if we don't know our history, we're doomed to repeat the same mistakes that some of those guys paved the way for. We can curve around that. But do you see that them coming at it from their own point of view is a good thing and a healthy thing? Or do you think that maybe they're overlooking some free lessons that are just sitting there? It's a really good question, Dan. You know, I approach it the same way that you do. I'm a student of the industry. I have deep respect for those who came before us, you know, respect your elders, the Jack Boyles and Ron Delsners and Bill Grahams and Jerry Michelsons. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, I, all I wanted to do was get five minutes with these guys. And I've been very fortunate in my career to be able to do business with a bunch of these guys. I talk to Jerry Michelson all the time. I mean, you know, Jam is a TicketFly client now, and we're working on a bunch of stuff together. Uh, ended up doing business with John Share, do some stuff with Greg and Sherry at Another Planet on uh, Life is Beautiful and The Independent. I find it confounding, frankly. You know, the, the millennials of today, they don't know, and I get the impression that they don't care. And I think that they're ultimately going to be missing out by not understanding how these folks created the industry and uh, there's tons to be learned from those folks so and there's something certainly cyclical too because if you go back and you read the bill graham story and you start out with the acid tests you're talking about the first edm festival i mean it was the grateful dead and a bunch of acid in the field but it was really the roots of what has become all of these big paradisios and electric daisy like all of those things you can see came right out of those early days i mean obviously it's a very crude version of it yeah no i agree i went to see wilco at the greek theater and jeff tweedy you know, played a couple songs and then his first remarks to the audience he looks out at the crowd and he goes he goes hey you know it's great to be in the bay area he goes you guys basically created concerts here. Good Jeff Tweedy, you got. <laughs> and, uh, you know, BGP, great example. Yeah, I think the Grateful Dead and the, the, the acid tests and that stuff was certainly the precursor to the EDM festivals and that sort of thing. Yeah, and living in the Bay, I mean, Bill Graham is the godfather of our business. And there was a time, and I think it's changed with the Live Nation setup a little bit, especially since a lot of those guys have moved on. But I remember going to visit 
visit Rick Mueller in the office and they'd basically have this museum of cool shit from the fire from the Bill Graham era of like the original stuff and like I'm sure you've seen it like geeking out to it you know look we'd need another hour of this podcast to geek out on this stuff I mean I played on the BGP softball team when I first started in uh, the music business in the Bay Area you know I, I work with David Mayeri who ran uh, the club division at BGP for many many years as a ticket fly client now as the UC theater and spending time with Greg and Sherry and Steve welcome at another planet like you know I could just sit and listen to Bill's stories all day long you know I just find that stuff to be absolutely fascinating. And, you know, BGP was, I think in some ways, sort of kept me going in the industry. Uh, it was just so inspirational to watch how these guys did shows. I went to innumerable sort of unannounced private club gigs that BGP did. Uh, of course, there was the Greeter at the Fillmore and the Apples. And it was just a whole... Posters. The Posters. It was just a whole different world. And, um, you know, I think there are some promoters who've learned those lessons and who are carrying those lessons forward. And I think there are some kids today who don't know what they don't know. Okay, and let's take a second to talk about Jason Miller who's one of your closest friends, says that you killed the experience of buying tickets. I'm paraphrasing, but the concept <laughs> of camping out for tickets built the experience. I think what he says is, how do you live with yourself knowing that you've ruined the experience for every kid in America who will never know what it means to sleep online for a concert ticket? <laughs> That's amazing. You got to love Jason Miller. Uh, I love that guy. I love that guy. It's one of my favorite things. And it is because we've both shared that experience where you get to earn your better seat by getting there early and camping out and early hours of the morning. And then you've got that ticket in your hand and the weeks of buildup and the hype of this is the day, whether it's Guns N' Roses at the stadium or you're seeing the Moody Blues, it doesn't really matter. There was a process that you earned the better seat and the closer you were, the earlier you were to get in line and you earn that. Yeah, I think those were great days. I used to sleep online for concert tickets, whether it was ACDC or Bruce Springsteen or whatever it was. And it was an amazing experience. There was a collegial fraternal experience that happened online where you met people you didn't know and you had the shared love of the band and you got your tickets and that was that. You know, now is amazing too. It's, it's a dynamic time. It's the most dynamic time there's ever been in ticketing and live events. And there's tons of other cool stuff. You know, now the fact that you can, you know, buy tickets online and understand, you know, better where your seats are and you can share those tickets with your friends and rally a group. And there's a lot of good stuff happening now too, but uh, I certainly will always miss those days of, of sleeping in the cold for my favorite band. Yeah, I got amped up last time we talked about this and went back to some managers and said, the experience is cool. We should go on sale. Essentially how they do vinyl now. We should release vinyl a week early is what they usually do on the release. Let's put tickets on sale three days in advance before the pre-sale for people willing to camp out. Let's find a record store that's centrally located downtown and give them the best seats. And let's go on sale there first. And all three managers said the same thing to me. People will send scalpers to sit out front They'll buy them and sell them online before we go on sale, and you're going to get the best seats to the scalpers because they are going to camp out and buy all of the fucking tickets. You fucking moron. And <laughs> They're not wrong. They're not wrong. It, I was coming from a good place of passion that I wanted to share that love that Jason has and I have. It's not a matter of it being a great idea, which I think it is, but I understand that I've completely fucked up the concept because the scalpers have ruined the game there. It's that time has passed that by, and it's a new day. There's a new way to do that, and that's just not how the game is played anymore, and we have to adapt with 
the age and the time, and technology has passed that by. That experience is lost to technology. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think we're seeing a good analog for this today in some of the populism in this recent election. You know, it's not Mexico or China that are stealing our jobs. It's technology. And, you know, this is another example. Technology has, has moved along and it's made it much easier and much more efficient. But um, it's also we're sacrificing some of those special moments that the kids of today will never know. But with that, other things that make life easier that's come along with it, too, of saving three employees, of entering in every change on every different platform. So the good with the bad. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, it's uh, I don't think I would go back from here. This is, and I say this every year, this is the most interesting dynamic time that I've ever seen in this business. You know, we are now sort of moving beyond technology, and now it's really sort of nuanced, sort of twist, turning the knobs and dials on targeting, personalization, you know, all kinds of stuff that machine learning, all kinds of stuff that are going to continue to make venues and promoters more successful, continue to make ticketing companies more successful. There's some very interesting stuff happening now. So would I go back? No. Okay, well, let's not go back. Let's go forward. You guys have cut a deal. It's actually sold. It wasn't a merger, right? Pandora bought you guys. Correct. So the genius of a ticketing company and an online streaming company that can geo-target where you're listening and, oh, by the way, we happen to have this show on sale on the market, couldn't have passed anybody by. That seems like that was right where that was living. Yeah, I think I was maybe uh, a little bit early on the curve on this one. Um, it occurred to me a few years before Ticketfly and Pandora came together that this was going to happen, right? It was just too obvious. Taking a huge highly engaged music audience online and the idea of serving them up a ticket in line while they're listening to an artist in the market where the act is coming, it was just too good. And I remember one of my, uh, a buddy of mine who runs one of the big festivals in the U.S., the day after the deal got announced, he called me and he says, yesterday was the day the music business changed forever. And uh, that stuck with me. And yeah, no, I think it's it's incredibly exciting. And the, the results have been staggering too. I mean, we're early days, but Dan, I hope you're sitting down. Well, you are sitting down because I see you're sitting down. So, so that's good. You won't fall and hit your head. But uh, let me give you some of the stats. So the Ticketfly Pandora automated integrations. We've served up 190 million impressions for our clients' events to 66 million unique individuals. 6% of the people... Wait, 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 wait. Let me digest that for a second. That's staggering number. That's the advertising that you're handing people for free is insane. Exactly. And this is all free of charge and for the most part automated. So venues and promoters don't have to do anything. It's just there. So let me give you the stats. 190 million impressions, 66 million unique listeners, 6% of the people who receive a, an automated push notification from us buy in the moment. 32% of the people buy after the fact within the next 30 days. So 38% of the people who receive an automated push notification about a ticket fly show from Pandora ultimately buy that ticket. Now you're going to find this interesting. 70, doing the math though. <laughs> 73% of the people who receive the notifications say they didn't know the event was happening. So the event discovery challenge that we've all had throughout time, think about that. 70 3% of the people who get a push notification on Pandora for a Ticketfly show didn't know the event was happening. And Wait, Hold on, let me insert this real quick. For people that listen to the Straight Note Chaser podcast where the 
band and David Britz were talking about playing a town and the fans asking him the next day online, when are you playing Dallas the day after they played Dallas? This is the problem he's addressing right here. That's exactly right. I mean, the number one reason why people don't go to shows is they didn't know they were happening. 73% of the people who receive these push notifications tell us they did not know this show was happening. And then this is an interesting stat. 85% of the people who bought tickets from these push notifications had never been to the venue before. So we are reaching a new audience. So these that's numbers, a Pandora shift that's massive. Yeah, these are new customers for Square Peg or for Emporium, you know, or for the 930 Club or the, you know, Independent or the Troubadour. These are new customers. We're also seeing the ticket sales are increasing. You ready for this? By 30% month over month from the Pandora notifications. So we started sending them in like September, October. Month over month, they continue to rise over the previous month. 30%. That's awe-inspiring in that number. And I'm very thankful I'm a client right now. <laughs> we are very, very happy about what we're seeing so far. And, uh, you know, we're early days. We're just getting started. We have more honing to do. I used this example at FlyCon. And when I said earlier that we're twisting the knobs and dials to sort of fine tune this. I have a Tyco station on Pandora. My mom has a Tyco station on Pandora. Which of us do you think are more likely to go to a Tyco show? I would think it'd be you. Yeah, exactly. So what we're now, the intelligence now we're trying to hone is let's make sure that even though they both have a Tyco station, that we surface up the ticket to the one who's most likely to buy it. So, you know, these are some examples of where this is heading. You know, this is intellectually it's incredibly stimulating and interesting you know i told dan when dan tried to convince me to do ticket fly in 2007 2008 you know i told him listen dan to dan Turi. i told him look uh, you know if we're going to do the same thing again i'm not interested and we didn't a ticket fly and now this has got me really energized going forward the pandora stuff yeah you're speaking about it really passionately so and one of the things i've enjoyed is over the last I don't know, five years I've had the opportunity to interview you in different formats a couple of times. And throughout the course of the development of Tick and Fly, got to see where your head was at and where you thought things were going. And you forecasted this a handful of years ago. I think we were in Canada and we were talking about it. And you're like, pay attention to this. This is going to be interesting. And it's never a moment where I think you're guessing. I think you figured it out. You're just trying to figure out how long it's going to take you to actually figure out the code so you can actually roll it out. Because I think when you tell me it's coming... You've already figured it out. Now it's just a matter of like, now how do I code it? Yeah, like I said, I mean, I was totally convinced, you know, years before Ticketfly and Pandora came together that the big streaming services and, and really any company interested in music online, right? And you know who those are, Googles and Apples and Amazons of the world, that ultimately they were all going to come looking for ticketing assets. And uh, just like clockwork, you know, there was sort of a clustering effect around the time our Pandora conversation started. We were approached by a number of big players interested in music online and who wanted to uh, make sure that they had ticket inventory to sell to their listeners. So, yeah, I think we were fairly prescient on that one. Well, the content was certainly there. And I think a matter of like figuring out how to get those clients and how to keep them. Because if anything, you can get someone because it's easy to sell someone, but be able to keep them in this business is a much harder fight. And you guys have retained a very large percentage of your client while continuing to sign more. Yeah, no, I mean, we're really pleased about that. I, I agree. Um, you know, again, our goal was to become an indispensable partner. You know, our vision from the beginning was to, in essence, mirror SAP or Oracle or Salesforce in providing technology solutions 
for all the needs of our clients. And yeah, our, our churn rates, you know, in, in the SaaS software business, we examine churn rates, the percentage of your clients that leave you. And our churn rates relative to SaaS are absurdly low. You know, we see like on a revenue basis, about two or 3% of our revenue churns in any one year. And you know, the biggest reason for our churn is our client was purchased by Live Nation or AEG. Not much we can do about that. And it's funny because we were talking a couple of years ago when usually when we're together, we have the conversation. So when are you going to sell? And then you ask me the same question and it's a back and forth. Ha ha ha. And I think we had a conversation. Maybe we're in Aspen and we talked about you had just sold and we were talking about whether we were going to. And we joked that there were many other candidates that would go before us. Bowery. A C C three had just been sold at that moment, but we were going through the list of the guys that were bigger than us on the independent front, and all of them since we had the last discussion are gone. So yeah, I mean you can clearly see every time you open the door, the conglomeration in this business has continued to gobble and gobble more and more of the people that used to be in front of us on that list of biggest independents or whatever. It's just like, and it shouldn't matter who the biggest is, but at the end of the day, it's a volume number and it's about growth for those corporations. So anytime they add something, they're adding a piece that's going to make it a more global and large moving part. Yeah. Look, these are some great businesses out there. Uh, the Bowery Presents, AC, you know, Bonnaroo, Bottle Rock, which got bought recently. You know, these are great events and these are great promoters. And I think that if I was Live Nation or AEG, I'd want to own them as well. But there's also a whole wave of young promoters coming up through the industry, many of whom are ticket fly clients. And I think these guys are the future. And, you know, I think they have a lot of running room before they're on the radar acquisition targets and or want to sell. Champion those guys. I think we need more of us fighting the fight. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, I love it. And they uh, sort of slightly contrary to what we were saying before, they always want to spend time with me and they always want to, they're into sort of being mentored and uh, they want to you know, know about the ways of the industry and promoters and, and the like that came before them, you know, but then there are, there are some who are brash and young and don't know what they don't know. But uh, I do think it's, it's a vibrant space and, you know, there are always going to be young music fans. I wouldn't know anything about being brash, but before we uh, <laughs> digress and I let you go, what's in the future? What should we watch for? It is a very interesting time right now. Uh, I think, you know, the, the themes that we're looking at out on the horizon, um, integration, uh, you know, we think that, that, you know, integration is going to be the, the place to be for venues and promoters going forward. There's no reason to have disparate technology systems uh, when you can have one technology system. Um, we think that, um, you know, now in light of what Pandora is doing, we think anybody who doesn't have a, a huge, massive 80 million a month marketing channel like that is going to be, you know, sort of bringing up the rear. Um, I think there's going to continue to be a convergence between primary and secondary ticketing. You know, we're seeing that now for sure. Are you guys going to at some point roll out something similar to Ticketmaster Platinum or a VIP level? Yeah, maybe you didn't see, but um, we uh, recently uh, entered into an exclusive partnership with Light. I don't know if you know Light, but it's a really interesting technology. It's sort of a fan-to-fan -fan ticket exchange only for sold-out shows. Oh, cool. It won't click in until the show is sold out. Exactly. But it protects the fan. Promoters have full control. It's only for sold 
sold-out shows. So that's like Ticketmaster Exchange. And- yeah, it is, except it's a little bit different. Light bears the risk. So what happens is if uh, someone wants to sell a ticket to a sold-out show, they can say they want to sell their ticket. And then there's folks who are interested in buying tickets, put their name on a waiting list. And Light will, in essence, buy the ticket back from the seller. They'll bear the risk, and then they sell it on based on about 500 inputs on executed transactions on the secondary market. It's very sophisticated technology. Are they selling it face or are they selling it over face value? Generally, it gets sold over face, but on average, it's about 20% lower than the cost in the secondary market. Okay, because it's, it's people looking to unload on a date they couldn't go to in most cases. So first of all, it really just annihilates scalping because the markup You're flooding is, the market. Yeah, the markup is not sufficient where scalpers want to do it and it's sanctioned by the primary seller. You know, it just gives scalpers a lot of reasons to not buy tickets to these shows. But it's really about people who can't make the event. And what we were seeing is, you know, listen, if you buy a $300 Beyonce ticket and you can't go to the show, you're figuring out how to sell that ticket. If you buy a $20 ticket to go see Foxygen in San Francisco and you can't make that show, you you know what you're doing? You're leaving it in your desk drawer. And then what happens is the venues and promoters have a sold out show, but they don't have a full room. Right, so there's no revenue from the bar on that show. Exactly. And we know that promoters make two and a half times as much money at the bar as they do on the face value of the ticket. Club owners make Club owners. Let's be very careful. Club owners. I would hate for any agent out there to think that I'm I'm making money at the bar. (laughs) Club owners. And so Light's technology reduces no-shows by about 65%. So very interesting. And then there's all kinds of additional benefits, Uh, you know, less fraud, less unhappy fans when they bought a fake ticket, revenue opportunity for venues and promoters who share in the revenue with us. So a bunch of interesting additional second sale. Yeah. So it's not only a service to the promoter, it's actually a service to the fan. And at the end of the day, we want happy fans. Exactly. You know, this is, I think, uh, this is a step towards refunds and exchanges right now, at least for a sold out show on Ticketfly. You can sell your ticket back. Only for ticket fly shows, though, right? Only for ticket fly shows. Okay, because that way you guys can verify. Are there other shows? (laughs) I love you, Andrew. It's an ingenious thing. Now, as far as the VIP and the platinum kind of thing, is there something like that that's in the work? You know, it's early days for this one as well. Um, we're going to see where to go from here, but, but we're, clearly we're certainly... the VIP thing has become a huge thing in the industry now. Like almost everybody has implemented some kind of wave of that, so it's got to be on your radar. Yeah, I mean, we do it now. We're examining the best way to do it going forward. You know, we're big believers in dynamic pricing, and we're still working with the industry to try to embrace that. Dude, I want to thank you so much for taking time and talking to me. This was truly enlightening. Yeah, this was a lot of fun, Dan. Yeah, we've done many of these before. I'm, I'm delighted to have done uh, Promoter 101 with you. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, man. It's hard not to be humbled when listening to Andrew Druskin speak. His mind is on a different level. And when it comes to technology, he's on a whole nother plane. Blowing my mind with some of those numbers. What a great interview. Steve Strange, X-Ray Turing, Promoter 101. Coming up next, we have a South by Southwest preview with Bobby Nell, Adam Wood, and Melissa O'Brien of South by Southwest. Promoter 101, we've got a special preview of South by Southwest coming up. And right now we're joined by three of South by's best, Bobby, Adam, and Melissa. Thanks for joining us, guys. I'm really excited about this year's conference, and I'm looking forward mostly to interviewing Steve Martin. That's uh, He's an icon and, and a mentor of mine, so I'm really looking forward to that. What are the great things you guys have got coming up next week? We've got Nigel House, who founded uh, Rough Trade Records. Jonathan Poneman, who founded Sub Pop Records, Melvin Gibbs, who's this amazing bassist, uh, jazz bassist. He was also in Rollins' band forever. That's going to be a really cool conversation. We've got a, uh, a sort of case study on uh, 
um, this electronic artist Matoma, and they're doing case studies showing how he, you know, went from kind of no one to being one of the most streamed artists in the world. He's from Sweden, and they've got the whole team kind of talking about how to break electronic artists today, and it's a really interesting case study. Dan, as you know, I have your panel with Steve, which should be pretty awesome. I have one that's really cool that we've done in the past. We've done it maybe for the last five years called I Wrote That Song. And it's hosted by Karen Glauber from Hits Magazine. And Britt Daniel from Spoon is on it. Chris Damey, Mac from Super Chunk, Matthew Cause. And we'll probably have some more by the time the panel rolls around. What a great lineup. That's going to be fun. It's crazy. That's like my favorite thing to go to. I usually end up crying at some point during it because they'll talk about a song and then they'll perform it. It's pretty great. One time, Jody Stevens from Big Star performed 13 and it was amazing. Last year, we had Fran Healy from Travis on it. And he did sing. So, I mean, it's it's kind of one of those hidden gems that we love and we try and tell people about because it is, it's just kind of a, a once-in-a-lifetime experience, really. We have an interview with Cindy Wilson from the B-52s. And she'll talk about her solo project. And then later on in the session, she'll be joined by Boyfriend, who's a rap cabaret artist from New Orleans. So that should be pretty great. And then we have a... 20th anniversary panel for Bella Union with Simon Raymond, and that should be pretty interesting too. Jason Lee is moderating, and then we have Nardwar Video Vault that's back, which is always an experience. People love Nardwar; they freak out about him. He's just constantly mobbed all during South by Southwest. He's very recognizable on the street. Jason Lee ought to be a ball too, man. That guy's great. Yeah, I guess he's a big Bella Union fan, and so he's tight with Simon, and and uh, it's just going to all work out so that he can be here. So it'll be pretty interesting. Awesome. What about the keynotes? You guys always seem to nail those. Oh, thank you. Well, we have Nile Rogers on Wednesday, which, you know, I don't really need to give him any... He's a legend. A big introduction. We all know Nile. Yeah, I mean, he's just amazing. Coolest people on the planet. Yeah, and then... And Thursday, we have Zane Lowe from Beats. And on Friday, we have a conversation with Garth Brooks and Steve Boom from Amazon. So that should be pretty interesting because we don't do a ton of country. So uh, this is, I guess, if we're going to do it, we should go for the top of the ladder there. One of the biggest rock stars in the world, country or not. Right. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to that. It should be great. Um, I will say there's one other thing that's really cool that I didn't mention. We do have a panel called Birth of a Purple Nation, and that is with Des Dickerson, Andre Simone, that played with Prince. You know, Des was in the revolution, and Andre even dates pre-revolution. And they'll be telling stories, you know, basically Prince stories. Owen has was his manager back then, is also on it, and it's moderated by David Frick. So it should be pretty great. I'm looking forward to that one, too. I love a good print story. It feels like it'd be a mistake not to ask you guys before we get down there. There's always the bait of what barbecue is worthwhile. I mean, everybody loves Franklin's. I'm not sure it's worth the wait. You guys live there. What's the scoop from the insiders? Where do we need to hit? I will say my, you know, the two places, non-Franklin, that I would suggest are a place called La Barbecue which is down on South 1st Street, not far from downtown, and, you know, an easy less than five-minute drive. Kind of like a truck setup, right? Just like a right. fenced-off lot, right? That place has got some amazing Correct. sausage. That place is amazing, and I love Micklethwaite craft meat. I think it's on Rosewood, East 11th Street. Again, not far from downtown, just on the east side of the, the freeway. For my money, almost as good as Franklin Barbecue. <laughs> Those are my two picks. But if you've got the time, you guys would both agree Franklin's is certainly solid. I think it lives up to the hype. It's pretty undeniable. Awesome. I'm a terrible Austinite. I've never been to Franklin's. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, it feels like the first thing you got to do 
is find a Lone Star beer and then make your way to Amy's. And then after you get your badge, you can worry about music. But it seems like the priorities are, are usually food when we're in Austin. Yeah, don't forget queso. You need to get some queso while you're here because it makes everything better. And it all comes down to uh, 3 o'clock in the morning eating off of some truck on 6th Street. There you go. Cool. Well, thank you so much, guys, for taking the time. South by Southwest coming up next week. We're looking forward to it. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Wow, they've got me so excited for next week. Can't wait to interview Steve Martin and grab some amazing barbecue while we're in Austin. Hi, it's Steve Zapp from ITB International Talent Booking Agency. I'm on Promoter 101. Our second featured interview this week is with ICM Partners' Andrea Johnson. She works with Wilson Phillips, Two Cellos, The Piano Guys, and Straight No Chaser. I'm really excited to have my very good friend Andrea Johnson joining us on the podcast this week. Welcome to Promoter 101, live from Polestar Live in Los Angeles. We're here in the suite with Miss Andrea Johnson from ICM Partners. Welcome hello, to the podcast. Hello, hello, I'm so happy to be here. And you're live. I am. 100%. I'm alive today, <laughs> right now, as we're recording this. So there's a pretty storied history between Dan Steinberg and Andrea Johnson, right? Where did you guys first meet? What's the connection? What's the backstory here? Well, I think it was probably... It was a walk conference, wasn't it? Yeah, Western Arts Alliance, which is one of the regional performing arts conferences that happens every year. And I was the West Coast booking representative at the time for a company that's now called Opus 3 Artists that at the time was owned by ICM, and it was called ICM Artists. It was a classical music management company that also booked dance companies, classical theater, classical music, so the fine arts. And of course, Dan and I would always have drinks, but I never had anything to sell him because... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have anything to make any money. And Dan Steinberg and fine arts are, yeah, are come exactly. to mind. Yeah, exactly. I was together, like, hey, right? Dan, how'd you like to present $300,000 worth of Alvin Ailey? Uh, and I, I think the answer was, was no. I don't have $300,000. At least I didn't at, at that, that point. time. Yeah. <laughs> and ironically, since ICM was the parent company, Rick Farrell, who was my territorial, would host parties with Andrea's division. Right. And host dinners. And I think we were at, not WA, but a smaller version of that conference. Arts Northwest. Right, in Eugene. Yeah. And there was a dinner that you guys were hosting. And I had gone to college in Eugene and promoted a lot of shows there. Mm -hmm. And it was, where's the place that we can take people? Because this is such a podunk kind of town. Where's the real place? And I had found the restaurant. Mm -hmm. And we all hung out. And we hit it off. Yeah, definitely. I mean, because all I was doing all day, every day, was talking to really uptight arts people. I kind of was talking about this on the student panel this morning. It is unbelievable the evolution of the Performing Arts Center, even in just the 15 years that I've been doing this, because I started in 2001. And at that time, we were probably trying to put on the road at least 10 touring international orchestras a year. And we would know, you know, we would be able to play 40, 50 cities with the Russian National Orchestra with Sarah Chang playing Tchaikovsky or whatever. You know, this is just a guesstimate. But today, maybe, maybe there are 15 markets that can underwrite something like that because obviously you're not making money at the box office if your running costs are $200,000 a night. Well, and grants have changed that. When the economy crashed, the people that are donating to these charities are just far, far less. There's the corporate sponsorship to help has gone away, which in return actually was very, very helpful in our company exploding because there were all of these markets that no That's longer right. could financially handle the shows. But there were rooms there. So what would happen with somebody like Andrea or Rick Farrell or Todd Walker would call and say, we have the show. It's always done great. but They have no more money left. This is a show that's a winner. They'll give you a deal. They'll help you. They'll use their media. Can you come in and underwrite the show? And there were many, many markets where we were gifted these winning shows mm -hmm. that no one else 
willing to step up for because they weren't necessarily the coolest tour in the world. I'm not talking about necessarily Sheryl Crow selling out amazing like rock out shows we're talking about some higher end art shows but whether it was a ladysmith black mambazo or canadian tenors there was a crowd there and they were high grossing shows and they were very particular uh crowd but they were making money and slowly we were gobbling up more and more of these as grants were going away and cherry picking the better things that were left on the table. Right, and as the executive directors that come from a certain kind of generation start to retire, and I mean it's been happening over the course of the past decade, they don't get replaced by other bureaucrats that are coming in from the city. They get right. replaced by either the building goes full rental and does very little assuming of risk, and they only partner with people like Dan or yeah. like you know other Steve promoters. Steve Littman, somebody Right, that right, elk. exactly. Yeah. Or they hire a rock promoter. I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, Aaron Zimmerman is a great example of this. You know, he came up through uh, Jam, I think. Actually, we should probably fact check this. And then was in Florida at a couple of PACs and now runs the Tobin Center in San Antonio. And there was an arena stint in there, too. That's right. Forum in Tampa. But yeah, you're right. But he came out of that commercial space and is now one an incredibly successful manager of a performing arts center. And San Antonio does amazing business for shows in that small room. It's just really shocking on how well Mm -hmm. some of his shows do. And he put together a great team in that market. But yeah, it goes back to an early day. But you've had an amazing couple of years. And when I say a couple it's like the last close to a decade has been a nice run of breaking acts and r&d for you whereas you were at the agency group and you developed a relationship with straight no chaser who were on the podcast a couple weeks ago and you moved from that into picking up the piano guys which is several years later but that was also a very successful tour and grew into arenas and amphitheaters in a lot of cases, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, not so much arenas, but lots of amphitheaters, yeah. Boutique. But multiple shows and theaters and mm-hmm. like big settings, like doing big grosses at high tickets. And then the piano guys are mimicking that success now too, right? Well, I think maybe you're talking about two cellos. Two cellos. Yes, I am, because I just said the same name of the act twice. Yeah. yeah. And how many markets do you want, Dan? <laughs> Dan's got a couple markets on two cellos. Yeah, we've, yeah. we've done well. We've continually grown our market share on that act. Well, I think actually an interesting point or interesting to me might be the point where I had had it with the fine arts because you know I was a classical music right you've got a background voice major yeah and I'm a huge nerd I mean by all accounts I'd rather just sit in a music library and listen to an entire recording of La Boheme which is what I used to do in college and then (laughs) dissect it and write endless endless papers about it (laughs) that nobody read but there was a threshold of pain there at the end toward the end of when I see I'm sold I see I'm artists and I made the transition for six months to a year with the new company which was called Opus 3 and is called Opus 3 as much as my heart was with all of those projects, there was just a massive disconnect between what the marketplace was and what the artists that we were selling and what the expectations of upper management were. I mean, it was just like... Impossible. It, completely impossible. Yeah. And I also realized that it was going to get harder every single year. I needed a parachute out of there. And Dan, actually... Ironically. This is kind of an anniversary that comes, I know. This, this, is is like, this is like the Dan Steinberg kiss-ass hour. <laughs> Which I'm very fond of myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was you knew that Bruce Solar, who was at the agency group at the time, was looking for someone to kind of help mount a performing arts center division at the agency group because they had all the talent in the world, but no one that knew how to speak theater. Right, exactly. They didn't have anybody that was servicing that marketplace because of the nature of how that company was kind of set up. They had a lot of things that would work. They just had to pay attention because the marketplace is high maintenance. Yeah. Right. So all of that being said, 
I was fortunate enough to get that job, but I didn't walk into the agency group on day one with a single client. I came with a Rolodex sure. of symphonies and performing arts centers and tried to build something where there really wasn't anything in that space at that time, at least not stateside. They had a really robust classical music program in the UK out of the London office. But that was the other thing. Those agents needed an agent in North America to hand the baton off to because they were getting stuck over there with talent that they were signing and not having a partner over here. So very quickly, just by virtue of being there, and I should also take this time to say, you know, Steve Martin has been instrumental in my career and so many other people's careers by introducing me to managers who might have talent that was appropriate for my skill set. And when you say Steve Martin, we should clarify the head of music at APA now, not the Formerly the president of the agency group in North America. So all of that happened very quickly and over the course of seven years at the agency group, I amassed a roster of about probably 17 or 18 acts. Which includes Wilson Phillips. Which includes Wilson Phillips. Love Wilson Phillips. And Lisa Loeb and some others. Still have Lisa? I do. Yeah, Lisa's actually doing a lot of stuff right now. She's got a ton of family product out, like CDs, books, all this stuff. Okay, and you've switched agencies. You wound up at ICM, yeah. which at After any given point... six or seven years at TAG? How long were you there for? Seven years at TAG, yeah. and now I've been at ICM coming up on three years. Holy cow, it's been three years. I know, I know, it's upsetting. Has it really been three years? In June, it'll be So three years. it was pointed out to me in front of a room full of college students this morning that... I think the Chaser thing's five years old. And it was pointed out to me that it's closer to 10 now. Yeah, it's 10. The first tour was in 2008. Yeah, so... Holy shit. It really shows you the age of, like, these things where you're like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm, in my head, I'm still 18 years old. Yeah, I know. And we yeah. were talking to kids that were all older than 18 years old because they're old enough to drink, and I'm sitting there like, oh, God, we really are old now. I think it's, there's something admirable about this, and I always think of the two of you, David Britz, Rick Farrell, and, you know, Mike Ducharme, the people that were on that IAMV panel in, what, 2011 or whatever that was... Was it IAV or or was that oh, Canadian the Music venue? Week? Oh, oh no, 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 can, no, that was Canadian Music Week. That was CMW. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Well, is that a, the one where you were Dan, dressed as a Dan Canadian Mountie? Did a, a series of pretty comical panels. That was funny. Yeah, it was you, me, Elodie went up. I guess Elodie was the mixologist. Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out a way to get Canadian Music Week to comp or a pass in an airfare. That <laughs> <laughs> was great. Hashtag Elodie like, Steinberg. <laughs> hashtag Promoter 101. <laughs> hashtag Canadian Music, music week. week. But yeah, it was it was great. You know, it was funny. It's like in Jason's old bar. So Mark was like, no, you'll never get him. He's like, had a touring for House of Blues Canada. You'll never get him. And I call him. I was like, hey, we're coming up. Will you do this? He's like, yeah. He's like, they've never asked me. I'm like, we'll never get him. He's like, nobody <laughs> fucking ever called. It was like, awesome. <laughs> but we had this fun panel. We all came to drink in Canada. And I think Nick Adler was with us, but wasn't yeah. on our panel. Yeah. But Rick Farrell was there. Rich Mills. Well, maybe yep. wasn't on the panel, Mil- but was there. Mills was there. might have been on the panel. But there was a series of successive panels that included that kind of cast of characters and it was about you know at this also time left sets did the conversation i think with somebody yeah, at that yeah same he came conference. up and yeah it was really kind of an interesting good. thing i remember dinner that night after the panel and Elodi was sitting next to andrea and they were looking around the table and the comment was you never ever have to worry about your husband once you've come to one of these things because <laughs> no one no one is focusing on getting laid. They're like comic book nerds, like all geeking out on like the manager of this is right there. It's yeah. like nobody's looking at the beautiful girls in Toronto. Nobody even cares about the talent. Like that's the funny thing about Well and and Dan particularly is like a scholar of the industry. Yeah. And that was always really amusing to me for as long as I've known him, which has been a very long time now, is that you would be like, and especially when I was in the fine arts, I had no idea what the fuck he was talking about. Like, who the fuck is Shep Gordon? I was representing Yo-Yo Ma. But he would get all like fanboyed out about, you know, managers and agents and, oh my God, I got a call from so-and-so. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> 
Anyway. Irrespective of the talent. Bill Silva will call and I'll nerd the fuck out. Right, it's like, yeah, oh yeah, God. exactly, Bill Silva. Yeah. <laughs> you guys represented, like, and this is, you know, six, seven years ago, kind of the beginnings of, like, Chaser and right before Piano Guys, and you guys kind of all came up together in a little bit, in that sense, professionally. And maybe yeah. this is just me from an armchair perspective, seeing kind of the success in both of your respective careers since a lot Rising, of you know, chain, tide you raises know? all ships. And I think we all addressed the Polestar panel as, like, that moment of, like, something happened. It was, like, yeah. it was the first big mainstream, like, panel I got to moderate and you know David Britz was on the panel and Chaser was just starting to really happen on the next level and Andrea was booking the act and it was happening and Rick Farrell was on the panel and Bill Rogers who was also involved in the act in the same way on the other side of the country on the east coast right. was yeah, Bill was on also the on the panel Andrew Goodfriend was on the panel and then Jason Zink was also on the panel who's my uh -huh. partner and it was this amazing funny thing because Bill didn't want to answer money questions or give up any information which became very frustrating to me but Jason was sitting next to him so whenever Bill wouldn't answer a question I'd ask Jason and Jason would either answer it or be a smartass about it but was very quick that day I'm sure Bill Rogers oh, loved that, that was too the, that well, was but the he kept saying I, I won't answer trouble. that I got in you know how they talk about and I think part of whatever modicum of success that I've had was due to the fact that you know how they say that the most dangerous poker player in the room is the person who's never played Yeah. <laughs> at least at the very beginning that was me like with the success of straight note chaser kind of out of the gate I didn't know really what I was sure. doing at the time. I Again, I had just transitioned from a business of flat deals, a business where I was a salesperson, essentially, because if you're going to ask UC Berkeley to spend $20,000 on a Turkish Darbuka ensemble, you damn well better be able to fucking sell. Yeah. So that's what I was coming from, and now I'm coming into this world of rent caps and facility fees <laughs> and rebates and all of these things that I'm, you know, I didn't know at the time. <laughs> we were talking about cross-collateralizing dates, which had actually never been talked about at a conference. Yeah. And that was like a really big moment. I don't think I knew what that meant at the time. This was yeah. a long time ago now. Yeah, was, and, but it, it was, it was taboo to bring up crossing dates. Yeah. It was like, people don't know about that, don't do that. It's like, well, let's fucking educate some people. Yeah. It was like, I believe the quote was, it's fucking brilliant. And we had this fun moment where you know, and it, Jeff White had walked in late and it was like, I'd made a joke about, dude, carb real quick so we can like hit the shit and get back to the panel. But I did it on a mic and I suddenly realized there were a lot of people listening to what I was saying. We weren't in the bar. And it was like, oh, right, I'm accountable. It was a fun moment because we were all there together and the business was happening, but it shed a light on the business we were all doing that maybe made it seem like it was actually bigger than we were actually doing at the time. Right. So we all got a little bit more attention than maybe we deserve. Oh, absolutely, 100%. I still get more attention than I deserve. I mean, I walk around here thinking, okay, yes, I'm very grateful to have the artists that I have and do as well as I do with these kind of left of center acts, but I'm not, I don't represent Justin Bieber. Sure. I don't represent Beyonce. Like, I'm in this kind of little niche world and it works and I'm grateful and I'm not saying that I don't have all of the aspirations that anybody else has. Anyway, so that was the first of many panels. But what was really interesting was there was this moment where we had gone on this little run of the circuit of all the big panels because we'd get calls from people who are saying, come up, we'll fly you in, we'll put you up, we'll give you free registration and we'll put you on one of the main panels and you guys can all travel around the country and North America together. And while we were there, we were all smart enough to realize 
if we were there, we were going to work the room, and but we were going to do it together. So we were in Phoenix, and we wound up doing the IWA panel, and we went to Canada and Toronto, and they flew us up to Canadian Music Week, and then we went down to what was it, Tampa or something? It's like Fort Lauderdale. Fort Lauderdale, right? But we're the only managers and agents and promoters in the room of all fifteen hundred venue managers of all sizes around the room. It's like we're all the prom king and queen, like. Of everyone, because they all want our business, because they don't care yeah. about selling each other. They can't help each other. Right. We're the only ones that have their drug of choice. We have the talent. And they're flying us in and paying us and offering to buy our meals. Yeah. And it's like, why the fuck wouldn't well, we go? I think, I think also we were all at a, kind of a, a different point in our lives, at least. When I started at the agency group, I was 27 years old. I was married, but I didn't have a kid. And so it was easy to like, oh, yeah, let's go to Canadian Music Week. Let's go to the venue conference sure. in Fort Lauderdale. Let's do this and that it's a little harder now and on top of that i mean we're all really close friends so come hang out somebody else is picking up the tab and we get to drink and eat together and we're all foodies but you know when we're together whether we're at a show or whether at a conference we're usually two feet from a bar hanging out together it's a very close crew and that's rich mills and rick farrell and david Britz and andrea and me and a group of like 30 other people that fly in and out of that, but zinc and mm -hmm. it's become this fun thing of it's a fun crew and it's great when everybody gets together and when somebody else is picking up the tab, we always find that to be even funnier. <laughs> I like it when you're picking up the tab, Dan. There was a fun moment, I think, in all our careers, but none of us were nearly as big as the industry seemed to think we were. But in all fairness, a bunch of us have grown into those levels. It's like we're now doing arenas and tours and you're doing many bigger acts and your acts have grown into that. Chaser's a much bigger act now than they were then. Yeah. And there's accompanying three or four other acts that have followed in those footsteps that are equally as big. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we want to kind of talk about the rise of a couple of these other ones that have just yeah. been fascinating. I mean, the piano yeah, guys... I love this story so much because it's a bit of a misnomer, the name, because there's really only one, one pianist. Guy. The other three guys are a cellist, a music producer who also sings sometimes, and then the real genius of it, Paul Anderson, who is the one who does all of the videos and had the concept to begin with. So Paul had a piano shop in St. George, Utah, which is a small town in the south of Utah. And he called up his friend John Schmidt, who is the pianist in the group, and said, hey, John, I want to do something different with our advertising for this piano shop that I have. What do you think if we like put a piano on a cliff in Moab and had you play it and we're going to upload it to YouTube and that it's going to go viral and people buy a lot of pianos. And so now they have this really funny bit in the show where they say millions of tickets sold, a billion views on YouTube. And we still haven't sold a piano. <laughs> <laughs> it works because, first of all, they understand that content and you've said it before, content is king. You have to commit to the content. The content is what drives the whole mechanism. So, you know, they're putting out a new video every, you know, probably two months, and then they're filling in between with content. But yeah, I mean, YouTube went to their Greek show last August to present them with a plaque for one billion views. That's crazy. This is an all instrumental, for, except for a couple of tunes that have vocals, ensemble that is covering, you know, mashups of classical music and pop that just hit a billion YouTube views. It's incredible. And you were talking about that earlier this morning. We were talking to a bunch of kids and you had mentioned that it wasn't driven by commercial radio. It was driven Not by the internet yeah. and it going viral. And that's absolutely a huge space now. And I know you geek out on that, Luke, that social media and that YouTube's numbers, they can't be 
underlooked. Like that's a real thing. How did this wind up in your lap? Cause clearly yeah. you don't spend every minute of your day on YouTube. No, I mean, I definitely try to be up to date with what's going on, but there's just no way that you can siphon through everything. Right. So I, like all of us, depend on my relationships because you never know where the next thing's going to come from. You know, sometimes it's a manager or a record label. Sometimes it's an intern, yeah. you know. But in this particular case, it was David and Winston Simone Simone, DSW Entertainment, which at the time was part of Primary Wave, but now they've got their own shop. And um, David called me and said, so I'm going to send you a link. This was five years ago. We're talking to these guys. Do you think that this is something. And I watched it and it was their version of Paradise by Coldplay that they had done in Swahili with Alex Boyer, the yep. Kenyan singer. And it was, the piano was on a cliff in Utah and it was absolutely gorgeous. And I was like, this is amazing. I think it was maybe two days after I watched it, I got a call from Randy Vogel at who runs the Mesa Performing Arts Center who said, hey, have you heard about this group, The Piano Guys? I, I'm starting to get calls about them. Do you know what, who they are? And I'm like, you're kidding. I literally just got sent this by a manager two days ago. So I called David back and I said, look, I'm actually starting to get phone calls from buyers about this. Have you actually signed them? And I think at the time they were still in talks. These guys are very, they're deeply religious. They're all Mormon and they have lots of kids. They make jokes about it themselves. And they, you know, it's really important to them to be home with their families as much as possible. And going on the road was not an attractive thing for them at the time. So we kind of started to introduce it in little bits and pieces. And then more and more and got bigger and bigger. And we, and, you know, we did it right. We didn't skip steps. We played the small theater and then the bigger theater. And then, you know, eventually the Wolf Traps and Red Rocks, you know, it took about four cycles to get there. We did a promoter 101 about clearing a ninth hold. Was, and I was amazed. And you outdid me with you cleared a 20th hold for 30th. Red Rocks. I cleared through 30 holds. Chaser. Actually for... BMJ, right? That was like 25 holds. That was, yeah, that was deep. But yeah. it was, no, 30 holds I cleared through for, for, the, for the piano guys. That was for whatever they've got now. Yeah, and two cellos then is also another one of these incredible DIY stories. This is where my background is actually actually done me better than for really anything else because when these guys came to me they were represented by David Lye from Park Avenue Talent who's a great manager great eye for talent and he works with Josh Bell and Renee Fleming and Itzhak Perlman but so he really knows the classical end of this so these guys had started releasing a couple of videos that were getting traction. I think they did a version of Michael Jackson's Smooth Criminal that had, was starting to get really a lot of heat. Elton John had seen it and called them and yeah. wanted them to start doing dates with him. But the guys had won pretty much every young artist competition in Europe at that point for like serious classical music. And they did not want to give up their credibility in that space. So they were looking for an agent that could speak the language of classical music fluently, i.e. if they decided that they wanted to do a double concerto with the Berlin Philharmonic, sure. they want an agent to be able to book that, but then in the same breath, book an arena tour. Be, be, yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty small subset sure. of people with that background. So that did me well because they were taking a lot of meetings and I ended up getting it. Yeah. yeah. And with a lot of your, your successes and, and you know the rising credibility and fame of the acts that you're working with, it's mm -hmm. not been without challenge, right? This is like, I guess, as you get to a certain level, that competition increases to a certain <laughs> point. People come knocking. You're at a space now where your artists are looked at. Mm -hmm. and you're under combat in some of those spaces too and you have to be more competitive on your game. I mean, I have a tremendous amount of respect for my colleagues that are in more of the mainstream kind of pop and rock world where it's the sharks are circling so much more furiously than they are yeah. with my stuff. Although, of course, anybody who's paying attention, you know, once you start seeing acts like this that are selling two, 3,000 hard tickets, right. 
you go, what is going on here? These are a couple of cellists playing ACDC. Yeah. Of course, then you see the show or like 10 guys singing Beyonce. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you go, what? And then you see the show and of course you get it because sure. it's, it's tremendous. But one of the hardest decisions that I ever made was leaving the agency group. And I mean, they all know it. It was because at that time, the merger with UTA was not on the horizon. I was watching my colleagues' rosters get picked apart by all the major agencies because the agency group was a boutique shop. You know, they didn't have... Some of the guard dogs of that roster had departed to APA at that moment. So the protection... No, no. This was before all of that. You left before Steve She left before Steve and Andy. No, no. Steve left and Andy left. And maybe I was after that. But it was, I don't think Peter Schwartz hadn't left yet. Uh, Bruce had not yet left. It actually wasn't for as much as I love Steve and give him so much credit for who I am now. My decision to depart wasn't so much about that. It was because I knew if I signed another three-year deal there, the same fate would befall me of not being able to trot out the branding Branding. department and the digital division and the film and TV and all literary and all the things that you need to be competitive in today's space at a high level. Sure. You know, but I loved working there. I loved, I still, I love all those guys. We had an interesting conversation recently about an act of Simply Three. Yeah, it's a violinist, a cellist, and upright bass. Right. Mm-hmm. We had this conversation about stacking the deck and using some of the, you know, the contemporary outlets like X Factor or America's Got Talent and yeah. using those as vehicles and stocking those shows with acts that you represent or have some content basis behind it. Yeah. You've never done anything in that reality space, right? You've never... Yeah, uh, sure. Of course. I mean, I, I represent Jackie Ivanko, right. who is a right. AGT finalist. Right. Um, for a while, I was Emily West's agent. Um, oh, not anymore, right. but she yeah. was also... Came off of that show. Um, so, uh, yeah. You know, the challenge with any of these shows, sure. and we all know it, yeah. is that it's terrific while you're on TV, and about 10 minutes afterwards, everybody's forgotten. Right. So, if you're well, going to have... Not only that, there's a management deal that is optioned with a lot of that stuff to the producers... Like in the case of Idol, 19 19 got the first right of refusal. And if they didn't want it, you probably had a problem because if those guys didn't want you, then they had a pretty big roster. The bigger issue was being reactive. So after that season, the season of whatever show it is, The Voice, AGT, whatever it was, is over, it's already too late. Right. right, and there's been some exceptions to that. Obviously, Carrie, in the case of Home oh, totally, Free, they were able totally, to develop yeah. that into the next level with the right management. Yeah, I'm not saying yeah. that there aren't Same. that there aren't exceptions, but for the most part, very few. The but percentage it, it, is very if low. You, if you wait three months after one of those shows play to right. start pumping out content, you're already behind the ball. You know, it's funny. Uh, act that shall remain nameless that has come off of one of these shows that shall remain nameless had been kind of dithering around on our A and R list let us call it, you know, our hit list, target list, and just still won't make a decision. And at this point, we're kind of like, I think we have to drop this act off of our A&R because it's the bloom is way off the rose at this point. They waited too long. But the point being, of course, you know, how can we make these things maybe work for artists that we already represent so that we can react to that publicity in real time? You know, maybe put some shows on sale, et cetera, et cetera. Look, this isn't brain surgery, and I'm sure that there are probably other agents that have been doing this. It's just I realize that, you know, if we can start being a little bit more proactive with trying to get some of these developing acts that are stylistically right for America's Got Talent is really the one that we hear from a lot. And then, you know, really trying to make that work for us while the act is on television as opposed to waiting until 15 minutes later when it's too late. I'm surprised that we, all of us together collectively didn't figure out how to shift that paradigm sooner. You know, it used to be where we all reacted to uh, this person's mm-hmm. on this show, we want to sign them and then do something after that. Now it's like, 
Why would we not just? Why well, because you're hearing from. AR? I mean, I'm sure you guys hear from AGT producers yeah. all the time looking for. You know, I don't think I'm selling trade secrets no. here. Everybody yeah. who's listening to this has probably gotten this email. Yeah. So if you have artists that are stylistically appropriate, not everybody is, and not everybody wants to go down this path because it really is, I think, for the most part, going to be more of an adult contemporary. Sure. Right. It's got to be very family friendly. Yeah. Totally. This is not the route for the person who wants to, like, you know, be a pop star. You know, have the next headline slot at Coachella. Like, yeah. it's not. But for my stuff that's left to center and doesn't have radio and for the most part doesn't have, I mean, PBS used to help us out to a degree, and I'm not saying that they don't at all anymore. But PBS is really only an effective marketing vehicle when it's being used in... I mean, since you own I Will, PBS is, you know, was super important in building Tommy Emanuel and Straight No Chaser and rolling out the tenors. There's a big space for that where they're running infomercials for the act in return for a contribution both from us as far as ticket proceeds and from the fans. And there is a helpful door that gets you in, that gets them showing visually and audibly the world that we're trying to expose you to with a lot of these acts that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. And if you don't get the genius of Straight No Chaser, when you visually see the Rat Pack kind of modern day show that they're presenting, PBS delivers that. And that's a great way through the door. Once you've seen it once and the word of mouth builds like... We're off to the races, but it's a great way to start the market. And it's been easier because everybody and their brother has done a, done a PBS special. I think me and Luke's is coming out on Tuesday, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, that's always my joke is like, you know, there's really very little barrier to entry because it could air once in Missoula, Montana at three o'clock in the morning, but we sure. could say that we had it. It's such a nuanced system. You have to know a lot about it. I just advised one of our clients not to do a pledge special because I knew that it would cost him quite a bit of money to do it and that it would not... Right, because it has to be edited in a certain way and they're looking for a certain content and there's no guarantee that they'll ever play it. Now, there's something called Arts Block Programming, which is what they run in, like, primetime. Right. Like, for example, Alan Cummings' show, Alan Cummings sings uh, Sappy Songs. No. Yeah, oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. So it's kind of like a cabaret show, but obviously fleshed out sure. for a larger thing for PBS. But that's Arts Block Programming because I don't think... I mean, maybe Market to Market, they edited it for pledge but i think that it just ran kind of in prime time in a lot of these higher brow markets yeah yeah so i gave that advice to this particular client because i said that would be much better than dropping all that money on consultants and all the things and, you have to do to shop it and the two or three hundred thousand dollars of production costs of producing that too oh my god i know even yeah. if somebody else pays for that you've still got all of the distribution and the consultants that have to be paid okay, so let's talk about the transition from the agency group to icm you wound up with a team that had all of those assets that you were looking for mm -hmm. to protect the relationships that so you could offer acts, not only the acts that you already had, but when you're pitching other acts, these very important things. Booking the world, which you actually had at the agency group. You had the mm -hmm. ability to partner up with the other offices because the agency group did that very well. Very well, yeah. But it gave you the option to do branding in a film department and those things that bigger artists have a taste for and even though most artists will never actually see any real branding or film they like to know that they're not missing out on it because they don't have the option to have it a hundred percent so i mean the partners that i have now um legitimately without sounding like a company yes man they're just really great people in other departments that i can call up who will give me time give me meetings give me whatever i need for me for my clients to educate themselves to educate my clients on whatever space it happens to be whether that's literary whether that's endorsements whether that's film and television right we actually have a couple of 
people at ICM who are what are called crossover agents. They're talent agents who work only for the concerts department. Sure. So like, for example, you know, Machine Gun Kelly is a client of ICM and has been doing a lot of film and TV very successfully. MGK is. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it's, it's been a great story to tell about Company Synergy and the agents who have been working on that have done oh. a tremendous job. And you've got great mentors because you went from working with Neil and then jumping over to working with Neil Benson and then mm -hmm. working with Neil Warnock and Steve Martin mm -hmm. and Bruce Solar and yep. Andy Summers yep. and just Guy Richards, an amazing crew. Yep. And then going over to now, you've got the ears of Steve Levine to help and mm -hmm. a lot of great mentors like Rick Farrell and Christine Kmarsh. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's just this amazing group of Yeah, it's a great team. It's a great team over there. Like the booking department is so strong, both in contemporary and adult contemporary EAC. So over the course of that time, though, other resources come into play because everybody has different relationships and mm -hmm. you're partnering with different people that have different relationships and bringing new things to the table. So you're a little deck just gets bigger and bigger. Yeah, sure. I mean, but I think that that's what everybody's looking for, right? Okay. So we're interrupting this interview. There was a fire alarm that went off at the JW Marriott during the Polestar conference as we recorded the interview. So we had to run down 20 flights of steps and never picked the interview back up until now on the phone. So Andrea Johnson's now with us, joining us on the phone. Now we return you to the great Andrea Johnson. So in the interview, we talked about a lot of history, and we hadn't talked really about what's currently going on and where you're going with things and where you think the industry is going as far as your part of the world. Yeah, I mean, I think everything that can tour is touring. And as a promoter, I'm sure that you see that just the volume is astronomical. And for the most part, you know, I'm interested in developing projects that aren't already out there. I'm interested in what comes next. What's the next thing that's going to blow up? And I'm not talking about like the next little baby band, although maybe to a degree. But, you know, for example, I'm starting to get into podcasting, me and everyone else. You know, I started working with Stephen Dobbs who of Freakonomics fame, who has a new podcast called Tell Me Something I Don't Know, which is a game show style podcast and going out there and just kind of testing the waters and seeing what kind of response we're getting with that, which has been really gratifying and just kind of seeing where there are holes in the market that we can develop projects that are really compelling for everyone involved. Live cheering podcasts. Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not a new concept, obviously, but, um, you know, podcasting is still a, a pretty under-the-radar thing. Most people do not know about podcasts, but I think that's starting to change. Definitely. Okay, so you're diversifying. You're trying not to dip your foot in the exact same pond every time you route an act through the same market. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, I've got my kind of niche, which is that performing arts center, kind of one foot in the fine arts, one foot in the commercial music industry, you know, with clients like obviously Straight and with um, two cellos and the piano guys. We definitely avail ourselves of both the fine arts world and the commercial music industry, but also looking for non-music projects, as I was just talking about. Okay. And when you get in involved with something that's a new act what's the process for you from going to discovering act and assigning you taking the meeting and deciding you want to sign something how does that work for you well and this 
is going to sound silly, but I really do have to think about how I'm going to sell it. If I can't be on the phone with someone like you and convince you, then how am I going to convince anyone else? And I think that's a lot of it. And it's also seeing the trajectory of what's possible. Like, it's fine. Obviously, most of us agents are willing to sign something at the very beginning and 10% of nothing is nothing, as we know. And that's fine. You know, you work for free in in the beginning because you believe in the band or the project and you see a narrative for it. You can see what the path to success looks like. If I can't see that path to success, then typically I don't mess with it. That makes a lot of sense. And what have you signed recently that we'd be excited to hear about that we should all be paying attention to? I'm really excited about this little band that I signed called Balin. It's two twin brothers and their sister, Julia. They are from the Upper West Side here in Manhattan. They just got signed to management by Kevin Morris and Christine Stouter over at Red Light and are about, I don't think that the record deal is quite done yet, but it's very close. They're almost like the second coming of the Carpenters, Joni Mitchell, uh, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, but out of the mouths of babes, as it were. Like Julia, is, I think, is 19 or 20 years old, and the two brothers are 25. And it's just so refreshing to hear this sound that we haven't heard in decades, really. Big shoes that you just set up. So you, that's a pretty high bar right there, Simon and Garfunkel. Wow. Well, I think everybody who hears them kind of hears different influences. I'm obviously kind of partial to those things that I was listening to a lot growing up, but they sound to me like these wonderful harmonies and melodies and and just something real and substantial that you can sink your hooks into. It's not highly produced. Let's put it that way. Awesome. Stuff to check out. Excellent. Andrea, thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us both in Polestar and again uh, here on the phone today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Wow. Not sure if that was an interview with Andrea or if Luke was interviewing you and Andrea about your friendship and working relationship. Yeah, she's great. It was a fun conversation and our careers intertwine so much, but I'm so amazed with what happened with her career and how well she's doing. I'm super proud of my good friend. Hi, I'm Claudio Trotta from Italy, promoter. My company is Balleas Promotion. I am on Promoter 101. It's always a treat when author Scott Perry joins us on the podcast. Scott Perry, excited to have you back on Promoter One talking about the Tech Corner feature. What's going on in the world? Dude, good to be back. Dude, money's coming back to music. It's a beautiful thing. It's hard to believe. But um, after years of a lack of venture capital investment dollars in the music space, it looks like a lot of the investors are starting to loosen up their purse strings and start investing into the music space once again. It was announced last week that Techstars is launching their new music cohort. It's being run by Bob Moz, who came from Top Spin and Twitter. It's got folks like Matt Sandler from Chromatic advising a bunch of companies as they grow their businesses to benefit the music space. Each one of these companies is getting $120,000 investment, plus various mentors are coming in. They have a lot of really interesting partners in the Techstars Accelerator, such as Q Prime, Sony, Silva Artist Management, Bill Silva Entertainment. And um, what happens with an accelerator is they take pre-existing companies and make them better by hooking them up with money, but more importantly, hooking them up with their Rolodex so that they can tap into their brain trust and make their products more usable in the marketplace. It sounds incredible. I love some of those names you're talking about. Well, the good thing about the Techstars Accelerator is they're bringing in really good insiders to kick the tires and tell these companies what will and won't work. But what's especially interesting is the companies they're investing in and bringing onto the Accelerator program because they all benefit the music space, but it doesn't look like any of them are actually licensing music 
which was a big issue with previous music-based tech companies. When somebody would invest into a, a music tech firm, a large portion of that money would go directly to the rights holders, such as the publishers and the labels. Say, for instance, Flippergram had raised $70 million for their platform, but a large portion of that money went directly to the publishers and directly to the labels. And it's really hard to get a foothold and become profitable when most of your money goes to those entities. I mean, basically things that rely on the music industry for their revenue, but actually don't rely on music IP to license, which brings their costs down exponentially. We love the cost coming down. That's always a great thing. And that word exponential next to it makes me a happy Jew. Beyond the Techstars Accelerator is a company called Amper, which is creating music via artificial intelligence. They just got a $4 million investment. Think about that. I mean, for a $4 million investment, there's a company out there that's trying to create songs via artificial intelligence, which sounds really cold and robotic, which it is. But imagine for your $4 million investment, you actually create a track or a stream of tracks that are able to gain tens of million dollars in licensing revenue throughout the lifetime of that track, that's not a bad bet to put down. You're talking about these millions and millions of dollars in technology. It's just, where are they hiding all this money? Because all those normal people like hear these zeros and it just sounds so impossible, Scott. Believe it or not, there are people with a few commas and a lot of zeros behind their paycheck who actually are looking for places to park their money. And the entertainment industry is still a very sexy place. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us as always. Scott Perry, thanks a lot for being on Promoter 101. Thank you, Dan. Much love. Be safe, man. Wow, he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, Scott's got a next level mind. Always excited when he joins the podcast. Hi, my name is Toby Layton pope I work for AG Presents in the UK and I'm on Promoter 101. Well, that's it for this week's Promoter 101. Coming up next week, the reigning king of comedy agents from Gersh, Rick Greenstein, and from New Frontier Touring, Paul Lohr and Trip Brown. We also have Jason C. Miller from Live Nation Asia joining us, as well as taking a look at young rapper trying to break through, Daniel the Beast Bustos joins us. Keep on the lookout for some great guests coming up. If you thought the podcast was good, or even if you didn't, or just want to reach out to us with some ideas for interviews or thoughts or topics for the podcast, go ahead and reach out to us by emailing us at steiny at promoter101.net. You can follow us at Pierce on Twitter or me, Dan, at The Jew. Be sure to subscribe to Promoter 101 wherever podcasts are listened to. And if you like it, tell a friend. Matter of fact, tell 20. Or just drop us a review. We want to know what you're thinking. If you have any questions, you can always go back and listen to some of the past podcasts at www.promoter101.net. Past guests include Tom Windish, Harlan Fry, Kevin Lyman, Brian O'Connell, Jay Marciano, Stuart Roth, Mark Geimer, and Shep Gordon, just to name a few. I'm Julia Frank and Four Steiny. Have a great weekend. Hi, my name's Ed Bicknell and I'm Promoter 101. And I'm in room two for something and I've got an inside leg measurement of 32 inches and a cup size of 31A. 